merciful forgiveness to spare the soul's life or his infamous sin of adultery with Bathsheba. The most important story of David is a Davidic covenant that God established with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want everyone in Forest Community Church to be biblically literate and theologically informed. Two key chapters that overarch the entire Old Testament are Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham, and then 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's covenant with David. So this is actually my second sermon on 2 Samuel chapter 7. Those of you missed the first part, uh, we have a podcast and also online sermon, and I encourage you to listen to that. Last time, in the first half of 2 Samuel, we saw David's vision to build a temple for God and God's revision to build a dynasty for David. While God refused David's offer to build his temple with the cedar trees, God never rejected David's heart and revealed to David God's redemptive vision. That is, God will select David's offspring to build an eternal kingdom of God. Today we will see David's response to God's greatest redemptive vision and gracious revelation in the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here we see again David's gratitude. So 2 Samuel 7 starts with David's gratitude and ends with David's gratitude. What is a rhetorical device? the Bible uses that, that ends and, then, and begins and ends the same way. What do we call it? Let me hear it. Yep, it is called the inclusio, inclusio. Very common rhetorical, rhetorical device of ancient world and even today. So gratitude is a theological inclusio of 2 Samuel 7. Actually, I believe that Christian life can be defined as a growing from gratitude to gratitude. Christian life is a nothing but growing from gratitude to gratitude. If you look at the first John, I mean John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 16 says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of a grace already given. In original Greek text, out of his fullness, plethora, we received grace upon grace. Christian life is an unending gratitude after unending grace of God. Actually, I pray that your life and my life is actually increasing gratitude after infinite grace of God. Amen? So question I have is, are you more grateful today than last Sunday? I call David's response today resounding gratitude, resounding gratitude. What is a resounding gratitude? David's first gratitude was a restless because he was motivated by the guilt over God's grace, God's abundant provision. Do you remember David was saying that while I'm in the palace of a cedar, the ark of God is in the shabby tent. So David has a restless gratitude caused by 
guilt over God's abundant blessing. David's second gratitude today was a resounding because he was motivated by God's glorious promise. God's glorious promise. Today, God, David's response shows, shows us that what happens to a person when he or she is completely captivated by glory of God. David's resounding gratitude today reminds us that we can also grow in gratitude to God's grace every day. And here we see two reflections that make David's gratitude resounding. So, outline is very simple. David will do, David will do two things. One is a praise, and second is a petition. So, praise and petition, that's what we will look at it. So for petition, I mean praises, let me read us Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 to 24. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about future of the house of your servant. This decree... Sovereign Lord, is for mere man, mere human? One more can David say to you, for you know your servant, Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, Sovereign Lord? There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth, God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people. Whom you redeemed from Egypt, you have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Today's story begins with a then, meaning after Nathan delivering God's plan for David. When Nathan told David that God will not just build a dynasty for David, but he will use his offspring to establish God's eternal kingdom, David was not just delighted. He was almost dismayed and literally flabbergasted. That's why he left his palace and went in to the holy tent or tabernacle, and there he sat. The Hebrew word for set was actually a word that means to dwell or remain. It means that David sat or stayed before the ark of God for a long time, probably prostrated, and there he spilled his heart of overflowing gratitude to God. By the way, David wrote, uh, do you know how many psalms that David wrote? In the book of Psalms, there are 150 psalms. David wrote 73 psalms in the book of Psalms. Some Old Testament scholars argue that today's praise of David must be recognized as David's 74th psalm. Here, David addressed God, Sovereign Lord or Lord God. English translation use a different word, but in the Hebrew text, they are all the same word. Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. David addressed God as Adonai Yahweh, 
Sovereign Lord, or Lord God, for seven times, while calling himself your servant for ten times. These two repeated words shows that David's recognition that God is a real king to David, and David's real identity is not being a king of Israel, but guess what? Being a servant of God. Being a servant of God, that is David's real identity. Is that your real identity? What is your identity? More than any other titles and the position in this world, I hope you know that being a servant of God is the most glorious identity one can have in eternity. David opened his praises of God with a rapid fire of rhetorical questions. Who am I? What is my family? What more can David say to you, God? Who is like your people, Israel? David felt God honored him too much. God's exaltation of David was too excessive, excessive and overwhelming to David. So David said, who am I? By that, David was saying, the sovereign God, sovereign Lord, I was a mere shepherd boy, but you made me the shepherd of your people, king of Israel. And then he's asked, what is my family? Why you mention about family? Back then, your identity comes from your family. So David said, what is my family? And my family was not illustrious, but actually inferior and impure family compared to other Jewish families of a well-bred. If you look at the David's you know, genealogy, David could say, my grandmother was a Ruth, a Moabite widow. My great-grandmother was a raped a prostitute. But you not only made my family a royal family, but now a dynasty. Not just any dynasty, eternal kingdom for your glory. And then verse 19, David said this, as if this were not enough in your sight, the actual Hebrew word not enough was small thing, small thing. David was contrasting the small thing in verse 19 with a great thing in verse 21. You have done this great thing. What David was saying here is this. Sovereign Lord, what you did for me in my past to my present was not a small thing at all. But somehow you regard it as if it's a small thing. And now you're giving me even great thing. What is a great thing, a glorious promise that God gave to David? You know, verse 19, David said this, You have also spoken about the future, future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for mere human. Hebrew word for decree is a Torah. Do you guys, some of you remember Torah, the law? And the Hebrew word for the uh, mere human is actually Adam, Adam. Together, David was saying that your promise about my future was a Torah for all humanity. Here, David realized that this word of the Lord was not simply for him personally, nor even restricted to his promised line of descendant 
or even to the nation Israel, but it actually concerns the entire mankind. When David heard God wants to fulfill his original promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his offspring in the future, David realized the honor of God's glorious promise so much that he called it Torah for humankind or mankind. Just like the law of Moses is never changing, God's promise is the most sure thing. The Torah for mankind, the Davidic covenant, is the most awesome thing. And it's God's own self and commitment, and nothing will change it. This realization made David resoundingly grateful to God with a profound humility. The foremost essence of a resounding gratitude is a humility. You know, this humility is a quintessential character of those people who experience God's grace of a glorious promise to them. You know, humility, the true humility, the biblical humility, does not come from my weakness, nor my shortcomings, but from God's wonderful Supreme love for me. Here I want to remind you of the fact that uh, humility can be a virtue only when we realize the source of the humility, true source of the humility. What is the source of humility? Our source of humility is a graciously generous and glorious God. Humility is the only possibility for those who know God's humongous love for us. Some of you heard me saying this. Humility was not considered as a virtue in the ancient Greco-Roman world until the gospel of Christ came. Because ancient philosophers, such as the Greek philosophers, they thought humility and humiliation are the same thing. The only humble people they saw was the prisoners of a war or slaves. By grace of God, we saw the most humble person. Who is that? That was the incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us. For us, humility is not a humiliation. It's more than that. It's actually divine high exaltation. So as soon as David was humbled by God's promise, you know, David praised God, verse 22, how great are you, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you, and there's no God but you. David's praises recognize not only God's greatness, but also God's uniqueness. There's no God like our God. You know, our God is great not only in power and glory, but also grace and mercy. The more I read and study about our other religions and philosophies, the deeper I understand this confession of David. There is a none greater in love and power than our God. With this great merciful God of Jesus Christ, no one is more blessed than you and I. We are the luckiest and most unworthy recipient of the greatest gift of God. We receive God's own heart. We receive God's own heart in Jesus Christ. We discover the 
powerful, humble love of God in his crucifixion and resurrection. Oops, I forgot to bring a book to show you. Today I was going to talk about a book, a little bit about a book called uh, Theology of Hope. I wish I had uh, the super, supernatural power to bring the book from my, my back to here. But anyway, there, there is a book called The Theology of Hope, uh, published in the late 1960 by a German theologian named uh, Jürgen Moltmann. It was uh, uh, one of the most influential and groundbreaking books in the uh, second half of the 20th century. Its main contribution is this. Moltmann, he said that eschatology, eschatology means the study of the last days. You know, he said, the, uh, ironically, many Christians think that eschatology, study of the last days, like a last doctrine to know. It's sort of an end of the Christian confession. But he said, that's wrong. Eschatology should be the first thing that Christians should learn. And he said, New Testament, New Testament or Christian faith from the beginning is an eschatological faith. And he's absolutely right. He said, our identity is shaped by the future far more than by past. And the nature of our salvation in the Bible is ushering the future of God to those who are struggling and suffering in the present. And then he critiqued the you know, modern, traditional, I mean, traditional Christian understanding of God's salvation. He said, first salvation story in the Bible is actually Exodus. The theme of Exodus was not forgiveness of God, as a traditional atonement theories talks about. Actually, the theme of Exodus is a gospel liberation of slaves into the free future of a gracious God. And this is the hope that defines us. He said it is the future that empowers us more than the past. And he is right. He is right. And our identity is not defined by what we have done, but what God has done and what God will do much more in the future. Amen? Being in Christ means I'm defined by God's faithfulness to Davidic covenant and his future. Being in Christ means I'm in Christ's heart and Christ's future. Amen? So don't define yourself with your past. Our identity is defined by God's promise of a future. Amen? You know, this week, uh, beginning of the week, I officiated the final wedding ceremony of Sean and Stephanie. Why I call it final, you know, uh, wedding, you asked him. And, you know, what is a wedding ceremony? Why so beautiful? It's about the future. What they're going to do for each other. That's why wedding ceremony is so precious. That's why wedding altar is a sort of a, you know, a manifestation or token, small, you know. We, there we see a glimpse of God's eternal grace for us. Because here is a, 
men and women out of uh, 8 billion people, and then they are now making exclusive commitment to each other. No longer mom and dad, but you are the most important. You are the VIP of my life. I bet Stephanie can find a better looking, smarter, better singing. I don't know what else can sing. You know, uh, Sean has so, so many gifts, so I can't hard to, you know, beat, you know, Sean's quality. But anyway, somebody better than Sean, right? Same thing. Sean can find somebody better than Stephanie. Absolutely. But... They are saying, in the presence of God and all these witnesses, you are the number one. I'm making, I'm giving my heart to you. The wedding and marriage is defined by the future and future hope. And John Maxwell, a well-known Christian, you know, pastor and management consultant said this, where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. You know, one of the reasons I, I find the Christian struggle is because we don't fully grasp hope of God in our future. You know, our real hope for the future, even though we believe God's promise and God's, you know, hope and all these things, but literally, really, Really, really in the, in the heart of a heart, our future hope is not about God. It's about my own project and the wishes. We're not completely sold out to God's hope in the future. We are hanging on to my version of the future. So let me tell you. Do you grasp? God's promise of the future. Do you cherish the hope of future, God's future that God promised to you? God did everything for us. You know, when people talk about the uh, uh, Davidic uh, covenant, they think, oh, I just said God made it with a David. Think again. Bible is very clear. Davidic covenant is for everybody. For instance, if you look at the... Uh, I missed the sermon note, so I'm going to skip that part. But for the reference, if you look at the Isaiah 55, God said, especially the verse 3, Come to me with the, all, with the ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. I'll give you all unfailing love. I promise to who? To David. You know, other translations are better. Okay, I guess that's the other translation. Okay. And then you come to the uh, New Testament, 2 Corinthians. Paul said this, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So what are these uh, whole, you know, promises that, that motivate, you know, Paul said the uh, Christians to purify and live a holy. You have to go to the one verse, you know, before the uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, which is chapter 6, verse 18. That was, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord 
Almighty. This is the exact promise that God gave to David. Your, through your offspring, I will be father to him, and he will be my son. And through him, I will build the world all over. This is a hope. What David, you know, what the David covenant that God gave to David is for all of us. And biblical Christians, Old Testament, you know, Saint and New Testament Christians, they all know that they are part of this David covenant. Now, last week, we heard a very timely message on discipleship by uh, Voltaire in the special Luke chapter 9. And, uh, you know, where Jesus said, uh, if anyone be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and, uh, uh, daily and follow me. Oftentimes, pastors like this sort of intimidate the people instead of inspiring them. But you know, the main thing in that passage is about following him. If we know who we are following, denying ourselves, and taking up crosses is easy. You know, Sean and Steph, once they know they're going to get married, it's easy to live their, you know, single, the, all the free life of, you know, freedom and, you know, all the, you know, whatever options of single life. It's easy because they know they're getting, where they're getting into, what they're getting into. Discipleship is a great honor. It's not a toil. Yes, they involve, uh, you know, hard work, but uh, more than that, it's a great adventure. It's moving into God's future. You know, somebody said, if you have uh, something, to, if you don't have uh, something to die for, you don't have something to live for. You heard that, right? What is, is your hope is uh, worth dying for? If it is not, it is just for yourself, then you cannot die because then it's done. Only thing is worth dying for is a hope that God gave us in Christ. And when you have that hope of God in the future, guess what? You will have a power in your present that no other hope in this world can give. And I call this power, this, this power I call holy hurry, holy hurry, holy hurry. Let me explain what the holy hurry in the second part of David's you know, praise. So for that, let's read verse 25 to 29. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you, may, you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying that I'll build a house for you, so your servant has found the courage to pray, this pray to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your servant is a trustworthy, and you have, your covenant is a trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight for you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. The second part of David's praise here was a petition. And uh, here we see that David's praises becoming a petition. Here, you know, David was so exalted by God that he was not only humbled, 
but he was so excited that about God's glorious promise, David is actually hurrying God's promise. Look at the verse, you know, 25. He said, now, and now, do as you promised. Do as you promised. Can you see David's impatience? David was telling God, hurry up, God. It's great. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for giving me this great promise of our future. Can you do it now? Hurry up. David became like a little kid who can wait for his parents' promise to take you know, him or her to Disney World. So David was boldly petitioning God to do it now. Here, we see David becoming from a humble praising worshipers to hurried petitioner. After telling God, do what you promise right away, you know what David did? I love this part of his praise. David felt kind of uh, uh, rude and uh, you know, awkward and embarrassed. So he kind of apologized to God. Look at the verse 27. Your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. The Hebrew word actually literally found the courage means found my heart. Found my heart to pray this prayer. Because God's promise was so good. God's promise was so sexy, so irresistible to David, that three times, actually, David utters the, the, the adverb, and now, in verse 25, 28, 29. An IV translation missed this critical point. But a King James said in verse 28, that, and now, O Lord, Thou art the God, and thy words are true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. God's future promise became a David's present petition. By the way, prayer warriors, or anyone who wants to pray, well, all God's promises meant to be our petitions. Don't just pray, but pray with God's promises. This is why reading Bible goes well with the prayer. The more you read a Bible, the more you know promises of God, you can pray with a confidence. You know, what a prayer David prayed. What a bold prayer. What a remarkable prayer David prayed. It reminds us of a, you know, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us in the Matthew uh, chapter 6 said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. One commentator said this, David's prayer was that Lord would do what he had promised to do. In this way, it was anticipation of a prayer Jesus taught his disciples. Your kingdom come. The word of the Lord that Nathan spoke to David has affected him deeply. This word has created a longing in David's heart. God's promise was so good. What did David long for more than anything else? Nothing but what God has promised. You know, I don't know about you, but whenever I turn on the news and I see this struggle of Afghanistan, you know, Afghani people. Do you, have you seen that clip that uh, the parents are throwing the baby? And then soldiers trying to catch the you know, baby because the parents said, take my kid because here there's no hope. 
Please take them to America. And then, you know, that's all I wish. I mean, we don't have to be saved, but save my baby. They're tossing their babies. And this, you know, soldiers, when they grab the baby, they're crying. The seasoned, hardened veterans are crying because they know the heart of the parents. And anytime I see scenes like that, what do you do? I pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in Afghanistan. As in heaven, your will be done. Move whatever necessary people, if possible, even change the heart of Taliban. Give them some compassionate heart, some kind of basic human instinct and respect. All God's promise becomes our petitions. And then let me quote, uh, let me read a quote from Jürgen Moltmann about the hope. He said this, That is why faith, wherever it develops into hope, causes not rest, but unrest. Not patience, but impatience. It does not calm the uni uh, un uh, unquiet heart. But it is self this unquiet heart in man. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with the reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world. For the gold of a promised future steps inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. Amen? If we have a hope of God into our heart with a faith, Maltman said, it will not quiet our heart. It will actually make us a petition and make us a fighter and warrior for the kingdom of God. You know, here, Maltman makes a very important point. That is, a hope and daydream are two different things. People sometimes don't distinguish the hope from the daydream. Hope makes us actively working for the future, while daydream just leaves us in passively, you know, passively wishing. You know, Christian hope is a based on God's promise, concretely revealed by Jesus in his death and resurrection. So a commentator said, a bold prayer of David is a perfect match for the remarkable promise of God. David and Yahweh have reached an understanding, mutual understanding. They now know their proper roles vis-a-vis each other. Yahweh has committed deeply to David, and David will insist on their commitment and commit his life to David. You know how David committed to God's you know, covenant to him? Guess what? David not only demanded God to fulfill his promise right away, but also David deploys his own resources to God's promise. Look at the first uh, Chronicle, chapter 29. This is the last chapter of the uh, uh, first book of Chronicle, and that also describes about the David's sort of uh, last will. It's a sort of dying, you know, confession and exhortation. There, David said this. King David said to the whole assembly, My Solomon, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen is young and inexperienced. Task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord. With all my resources, I have provided 
for the temple of my God. Gold for gold and all this. And then verse 3. Beside, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything. I guess this is where we got the expression, above, beyond, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. And the example of that 3,000 talents of gold. 3,000 talents of gold I calculated is about $6 billion today. And then at the end, David said, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord today? You know, David didn't just uh, petition God to do, fulfill the promise right now. David also committing every resources I have toward that promise. Earlier in the first chronicle, chapter 22, verse 14, David said this, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord. Historians believe that David's extensive conquest was not just motivated by the territorial expansion, desire for territorial expansion, but his preparation to provide a material for God's future temples. David was not just wishing God's promise to be done, but much more. He was working sacrificially, wholeheartedly for God's promise to be fulfilled. And then he even challenged his officials to join him. Who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? You know, he's saying, I gave this much. What about you? That's what he's saying. I just dropped off my youngest daughter to college. And truly it is, you know, my prayer for all our freshmen that they will consecrate themselves to God through their college education and experience. Let me close uh, today's message with this quote about one great Latin American saint and a Christian martyr. He's a Roman Catholic priest, Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, for me, he is a pastor of a pastor because he spoke for the poor. He spoke against the violence and injustice of a right-wing you know, military junta. And he was actually assassinated while he was uh, you know, administering, I mean, ministering the uh, communion in his own church. And this is what Oscar Romero said. The church with its message and with its word will meet thousand obstacles, just as a river encounters boulders, rocks, and chasm. No matter, the river carries a promise. I will be with you to the end of ages, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the will of the Lord. Yes, church is like a river. And just like a river, will find its end eventually in an ocean. The church of Jesus Christ, that is us, people of God, we will find our destiny in God's ocean of eternal love. Amen? That is our future. That's where you and I are going. That's what defines us. And that's what we drive, that drive us. You know, our life is a preview of our future. Our life is supposed to be 
preview about what God is bringing to this world. In Cornerstone, we define the faith is uh, just uh, you know, knowing the heart of God. When you know the heart of God, His love, you, you simply not, you're simply not just uh, grateful. You want to make their heart known to other people. My last comment on the, today's story is this. If David praised God and petitioned God and prepared God's promise this much before Christ's coming, and his fulfillment of God's promise. How much more should you and I praise God and petition God and prepare for God's future with our present sacrifice? Just like David took a great pains to give away every treasure for God's future, let us give away our treasure for God. Even in pandemic, our time, our prayer, you know, our mind, you know, everything. Oh, yeah, our money. I forgot the money. With a double joy and confidence. Amen? Let's pray.